Welcome to the latest episode of the Shaken and Stirred podcast. I'm Simon Hildry and with me is Phil Milburn. Hello, Phil. Hi, Simon. So, quite an eventful um, recent couple of weeks. We've obviously had the Fed cut rates and we've had the ECB um, startup QE. Let's start with the Fed rate cut. What's, uh, it's obviously wasn't a surprise to you to the market or you feel but what's what's your view of of why now and what it means thank you simon we very much view what the fed is doing as insurance cuts um, rather than the start of a long prolonged cycle of cutting so as you just mentioned alluded to on the 18th of september they cut their rates by 25 basis points to now a range the Fed uses a range rather than a specific number of 1.75 to 2%. Um, however, I think what was more interesting was that the market's view was this was quite a hawkish cut, um, as there were very much some dissenters on the FOMC, Federal Open Markets Committee, the part of the Fed that actually sets rates. And looking forward, um, Powell, the chair of the um, Fed, FOMC, um, has said future cuts will be very data dependent, um, which is central bankers' language for often we don't know. But in this case, he obviously has to try to take his decision-making committee with him. And the Fed always publishes what's referred to as dot plots, which show the forecasts for where each of the voting members think rates are going to be. And it's the dot plots that were particularly seen as hawkish, with, for the rest of this year, calendar 2019, five of the members assume that rates will now stay where they are. Seven members think there'll be one more cut, and five members don't think there should have been a cut in the first place back on the 18th of September. So it's a very much divided committee, and it's not sending a strong signal that we're starting a long cycle of cuts. We see this as a very sensible thing of the economy is still strong. And were you surprised by those numbers? And did you think that the cut was hawkish? I very much did did think it was a hawkish one, yes. Um, the number of dissenters is quite surprising, including actually Bullard dissenting, um, who is normally one who will always go with consensus, even if it's not their central case. Um, what was possibly uh, more interesting was the timing around the Fed's meeting um, coming on the back of a few days of a spike in the repo markets. The repo markets constitute a decent amount of the monetary plumbing of the financial system. What happened back on the 14th, 15th of September time is repo should be very close to the Fed rate, so it should have been about 2%. On one particular day, the rate spiked close to 10%. Um, and this was based on basically a shortage of money caused by a combination of Treasury issuance sucking up cash out of the system and the 15th of September being one of the big tax payment days. So the Fed reacted the next day by providing $75 billion of open market operations liquidity. But certainly it's raised a few eyebrows. We're less concerned than most people are about it because 
there's no obvious signs of pure banking stress. It was just a money shortage, partly caused by the QT that we've talked about in previous podcasts. Uh, But in terms of banking stress, um, indicators such as the LIBOR OIS spread hasn't widened. It's still sitting there in the high 20s basis points. So we can be relaxed there. But what this does mean is um, that Powell and his uh, compatriots received a lot of questions about what was going on. And we are likely, in my opinion, to see permanent open market operations, POMO for want of an acronym. This isn't QE. It's more a case of making sure the central bank is acting as a lender of last resort and injecting liquidity whenever the monetary markets become very tight. Um, And it's just a simple supply demand. And it does show how relatively fragile the financial system still is. Is that is that so? But you don't see that as a cause of worry then, that fragility? It back in 2007, 2008, um, it was um, the plumbing in the money markets, be it um, breaking the book on a on a money fund or spikes in repo that were the first proverbial canary in the coal mine. In this particular case, there is only one canary. There aren't a multitude of canaries. Forgive me, I can't remember the collective noun for canaries offhand. Um, but provided the liquidity is provided by the central bank, then yes, we're very relaxed. I think more what it does show is the ongoing drain of cash from the system that the US spending is creating. And a lot of this was caused um, by the fact that over the summer, um, there was a bipartisan deal reached in Congress to suspend the debt ceiling until July 2021. Because this happened, the US Treasury has been issuing a lot of bonds and bills to replenish um, basically their balance sheet full of cash in order to fund the spending. That, that Treasury issuance, by definition, sucks cash out of the private sector. And I think they've actually just absorbed too much cash. And the repo spike was a confluence of events that illuminated that. Okay, just before we turn to other central banks, um, would you now expect not another rate cut from the Fed? Or is that is that just um, impossible to tell? It is a tremendously tricky call. Um, if, if you put a um, gun to my head, um, then I'd probably say one more 25 basis point cut. Um, but the, it's a 51-49 decision um, as far as I'm concerned. Um, what matters more to me is the fact that there's already a lot more cuts than that already in the market. Therefore, the market's expensive. Um, but the real, the heuristic, for want of a way of describing it, um, or rule of thumb, is back in the 90s, whenever the Fed did insurance cuts, both times then they did 75 basis points. They've done 50 so far. So they might do one more 25 basis point and then clearly signal a definite pause. Okay, so let let's turn to other central banks. Obviously, we've seen ECB and QE. Do, do you want to talk us through what 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 they're up to and what that means? Yep, thanks, Simon. I'll briefly touch upon well, the Bank of England on the nineteenth of September um, kept on hold as consensus. Um, the language is starting to be a little more nuanced around the growth outlook, but um, 
it's pretty much a one-issue economy at the moment, that dreaded word Brexit. No one wants to hear it again, but so I won't go into detail there. What's possibly more interesting is the Bank of Japan in the last couple of days as well has indicated no change. But we now anticipate that they will take action next month for their October meeting. The rationale behind that is that the consumption tax in Japan is going up at the end of this month from 8% to 10%. Um, last time consumption tax went up, it caused a mini recession. So we think the Bank of Japan will start taking action as well, um, basically at their October meeting. But as you said, the ECB has already moved. They've cut rates 10 basis points to minus 50 basis points. And on the 1st of November, they're starting QE, um, to paraphrase, to infinity and beyond of 20 billion euros a month until such time as inflation is sustainably near their target. Yet even despite all of this, it was seen as a little hawkish um, because the ECB effectively said afterwards, we're all in now, this is all we're doing, and now it should really shift to the other side, it's up to you on the fiscal side. As far as I'm concerned, nearly all the central banks around the world have long since passed what's referred to the rever as the reversal interest rate the rate at which actually rate cuts below that are counterproductive. It's a term that's uh, been used quite a lot recently by the likes of Brunemeyer of Princeton University. Um, and it's a term that's growing in popularity. I see it's very simple. It's a signaling impact that the central banks are saying things are so bad when they're really not. Um, but the central banks also shouldn't be able to expect, shouldn't be expected to solve everything. OK, before I ask you about the fiscal and the other levers, what's the implication then of that of that action beyond the point at which it has kind of effect or benefit? Um, central bankers would clearly disagree with me because they're still cutting. Um, but if you want a bank, a commercial bank to start um, actively lending, you need a steep yield curve. Um, because banks have the classic model, borrow short to lend long. Um, when QE has artificially flattened the yield curve throughout all maturities, um, that by definition constrains bank lending and hurts banks' animal spirits to lend to more risky companies. At the same time, the marginal wealth impact of continually cutting rates and boosting the price of assets um, has, continues to diminish as the impact is felt less and less um, by those that actually have a what economists would call high propensity to consume and more wealth is consolidating in fewer hands in the world. But as I say, to me, the main impact is still the confidence impact. When your central banks out there saying things are really bad, we're putting rates further, when they're not that bad, inflation is still globally at 1.9%, um, then I, I just think that sends a very poor signal to those that actively follow central banks, such as financial market participants and large businesses. And what of the other policy levers? Are we are we seeing are we seeing much of that? Are we likely to see many? And this is, I think, where a lot of the good news is. 
is that a lot of economies around the world do have fiscal headroom in order to be able to expand the spending um, and boost economies. And the marginal impact of fiscal spending, I think now we're much more powerful than the monetary side, as I say, with the monetary side largely exhausted. You can always do more. It's just it, its efficacy decreases and decreases. So already in the last few days, we've started to see the Dutch and the Finnish government talk about loosening um, fiscal policy. The big one here in Europe is clearly Germany. And there's a lot of debate there, given that Germany constitutionally has to run with a balanced budget. There's been two theories put forward. One is that Germany could do capital spending, which doesn't count towards the budget on green projects. I put a very low probability of that happening just because of the whole constitutional challenge it would create. However, Germany is currently running with a budget surplus of approximately 2% of GDP. By simply taking that to a balanced budget, they could spend in excess of $80 billion um, of fiscal spending, um, which most governments actually do like to do. It tends to get you re-elected more when you spend more. So um, simple number, Germany could spend $80 billion extra on the fiscal side and still not breach their balanced budget. On the other side of the Atlantic, fiscal spending is already, I would say, not quite out of control, but approaching its limit, with the US actually running with a fiscal deficit of about 4% of GDP, just under $900 billion per annum. And if you remember a few minutes ago, I mentioned that the US Treasury has been sucking cash out of the market. A lot of this, or basically the whole point of this, is to fund that ongoing fiscal deficit. Um, so these things are all interrelated in the greater scheme of things. Back over here in the UK, regardless of what happens on Brexit, the UK now has fiscal headroom running with a deficit of only 1% of GDP. Um, it's generally accepted that the UK can run with a deficit of 3% of GDP. So regardless of who wins the next election, regardless of Brexit, I would expect some fiscal loosening here in the UK as well. But to wrap all of this together, I don't think more monetary stimulus is needed at all. Manufacturing weakness is caused by the trade wars, but services remain strong, a theme we've been talking about all year. We're past reversal interest rates, so actually it's not that beneficial. In fact, it's detrimental to cut rates, but fiscal policy can and probably will provide a boost. So where what we're saying is you continue to want to be very much underweight interest rate risk, short duration. We're more optimistic on growth than most. We think growth will be okay this year. If you look at official forecasts, they've got real growth, global growth at 2.9%. Add 1.9% inflation, you get to just under 5% nominal growth. That's not bad. And it's certainly not an environment where the bond markets are discounting recessionary conditions. So we think it's an environment where you should continue to prioritise alpha over beta and be under no qualms at all. Fixed income is expensive. OK, Phil, thank you very much. And thank you to everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time.